rules that have been made for mammals and birds don't necessarily apply to ectotherms. This is a pretty sweet story, so buckle up. Welcome back. This is Herpetological Highlights, episode 57. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. We have another Patreon episode for you guys this fortnight. What, what's the, what's what's our topic? What's our general? So it. What's the actual 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 topic? The topic was Central American vipers, and mm, broad broad. That's what we great, like. We're grateful Tackleable. because it was still hard to find stuff, um, and this was for Miles Masterson. So thank you very much, Miles. And uh, yeah, he basically just said, "Give me something on Central American vipers." Um, and so here we are talking about Central American vipers, which... An excuse for another snake episode. I mean, we're not going to fight that too much. I know. It's like, oh, <laughs> I read the email. It's like, oh, can we have an episode on snake? Oh, yeah, go on then. You twisted our collective arm. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's interesting. Like, uh, So we've got one on kind of a broad sort of eco-geographical rule and why it doesn't really matter for snakes. Uh, and You're then given we... is massive spoilers. Oh, sorry. Okay, that is a big spoiler. But should we? Should I not spoil them that much? It's <laughs> <laughs> it like matter. the whole paper in a sentence, isn't it? Well, yeah, because the 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 title of the paper is actually a question, isn't it? So that wouldn't have given it away. So um, there you go. Well, well that's, maybe, that's just to coax you maybe in. We... If if the Rule of thumb is, if the paper is a question, it means no. Because otherwise, well, this... the title of the paper would be Snakes Conform to, or... Yeah, it would it would, it would would be framed in a different way, I would well, suspect. Well, interestingly, I don't... I... Only because I've been guilty of doing the same thing. I can't tell if what you're trying to do is, like, reverse my spoiler, because what you've just said doesn't actually relate to the paper we're about to discuss. In fact... Something else is true, but I might just be spoiling it again. So let's just maybe move on. And um, the second paper is really cool. It's about a cool snake doing cool stuff and being different from other members of its species for different reasons. Uh, or maybe they won't be different. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'm, I'm putting an end to this. We're going to go straight into the first okay. paper and just just get on with stuff. Yeah. Jeez. I thought I was um, doing well at this time in the morning, but actually, apparently, I'm not. <sighs> okay. Okay. Jadin, Milajevic, and Orlovsky, 2019, hot off the press. Do new world pit vipers scale down at high elevations? Scale down is in inverted commas. Macroecological patterns of scale characters and body size. Published in Ecology and Evolution. Uh, yeah, so this paper we're talking about, it's mostly about this Bergman's rule. Yes, whoever this Bergman was. I meant was. to find out who Bergman was because I thought that would be an interesting aside, but I have not. Do you know who Bergman was? I have no idea who Bergman was, but while you give a little bit of background about what his or her rule is, I'm going to find out. Okay, so Bergman. Bergman basically had this idea back in Bergman's day, and what Bergman thought... Which was 1847. Get out of town, 1847. Um, basically, the idea was that related animal species 
So if you've got a group of animals that are related to each other, let's use the example of types of sheep, like longhorn sheep, bighorn sheep, um, fluffy type of sheep. And medium horn sheep. Yes, small horn sheep. If they're all in a group together and they're all related, the idea is that they will get larger as the species find themselves at higher elevations. So if you've got a species of longhorn sheep which is found in the plains down the bottom of a mountain, they're probably going to be smaller as compared to their relatives, which live at the top of the mountain. Now, this will be different. Spe- it can be different species or it can be within species. Yeah, but the idea is that high lat- either high latitudes, so if they're higher up on the planet or lower down on the planet, I suppose you could have really low latitudes too. Um, it gets colder and at high elevations up mountains, it also gets colder. So the animals are going to get bigger to combat this additional coldness. The reason for that being that if you're bigger, you've got a higher volume to surface area ratio, so you're better conserve heat. Um, It also has other advantages like if you're bigger, you can store more fat, you're less likely to starve, you can go through sort of times of fasting, and you can kind of um, survive extreme seasonality better because you've got a bigger body. Um, and this definitely works in endotherms, so mammals and such, mainly just mammals. Um, and birds. No, birds birds too. Birds too, yes. Yeah, Bergman's, Bergman yeah. had birds locked down? I, well, You're the, I think there are examples of birds, birds following the rule. You're yeah. a bird man, I'll take your word for it. Um, so yeah, essentially that's Bergman's rule. You should be getting bigger as it gets either higher latitude lower latitude or upper mountain just generally colder um but the question was does it work for snakes have okay wait before we go on to snakes tell us who bergman is oh carl bergman he was a german biologist in the 19th century his wikipedia page wasn't particularly long or interesting it was more about just where he worked did he have any multiple different types did he have a single weird quirk that you could pick out to uh, amuse or bemuse our listenership um, you'd expect Bergman to be spelt with one N, but there's actually two N's. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> That's all I got. Take that little snippet <laughs> to the bank. Uh, <laughs> okay, so the question is, and the question which is on the tip of everybody's tongue, does Bergman's rule work for snakes? Can it? Snakes yeah. aren't even warm-blooded. We have a second rule, though, before we dive too quickly into that. Dos- James's rule. James's rule. What? Yeah. So this is like Bergman's rule, but it's intraspecific, so within species, as opposed to... So Bergman's is quite general, it can sort of... It's between species, within species, whatever. James's was more specific for intraspecific variation, within species variation. And that's been actually studied more than Bergman's sort of technically, because it's easier to do. Mm. Because it's very easy to be like, okay, here's a species we know that a species is a species by whatever definition. And so the variation in body size and whatever is due to certain things, not just uh, there are different species in different places. Because it's quite hard to get a group which span a big enough area to investigate Bergman's, Bergman's rule while making sure it's sort of monophyletic and they're all like a distinct unit. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And it's not like an evolutionary difference causing causing the differences in body size as opposed to latitude, elevation, and the uh, sort of climate yeah. that go along with them. If you're going to look at Bergman's rule, you've got to look at the entirety of the clade, if you can, 
to make it make sense. So say you're going to do, well, this paper is a good example. They wanted to do um, snakes. They thought, oh, yeah, well, we'll do some nice vipers. And so they decided to do it using new world pit vipers, which are pretty well defined phylogenetically. It's safe to say that this group as a group is a group and evolutionarily they represent like you say a monophyletic squad yeah there's still some like mess in some of the like areas within that group um but the group as a whole is relatively well well confidently defined yeah yes and the mess in the middle doesn't matter as much because they're essentially you're treating them as one unit or, or, or one continuum. Precisely. Um, what's the right word? Yeah, line- yeah so it's just one big lineage. Yeah, yeah. So it's acting like a species just with a lot of variation in that species. Yeah. So, as I said, this paper, they're doing it with New World Pit Vipers. Other people have done it with other snakes and reptiles and amphibians in the past. And there hasn't really been much of a pattern, Bergman-wise. And there was actually a review in 2006, and that suggested that snakes are the vertebrate group with the least agreement with Bergman's rule. Uh, That is, they don't get bigger as it gets colder. So that kind of sets the scene for uh, Bergman not necessarily applying to snakes. Um, And so, yeah. Or or lizards too, like closely related lizards and stuff. There's some weird variation there where sometimes you get larger lizards in higher latitudes, but also in hot, dry areas you might get larger lizards. Yeah. Sometimes they got more scales... Sometimes they got fewer scales. It doesn't seem particularly consistent, but that might be just a sort of sampling artifact. Maybe you just haven't done all the lizards all in one go and there is a pattern that comes out eventually. Could be. Maybe it's on a species level. Maybe it's on a, like, within species level. Maybe it varies between populations. It's, yeah, it seems like partly patterns aren't very clear, but equally I think it could be people just haven't done it enough mm. that they have done for, for mammals and birds and, and the like. Yeah, everyone always does furry stuff first. Mm. It goes fur, feathers, scales. Exactly. Then maybe 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 slime too. Mm. Slime, and, slime and scales, pretty neck and neck. Slime and scales are probably neck and neck, yeah. yeah. Then if you're invertebrate, ah, forget about it. If you haven't got a backbone, everybody's going to forget you. Yeah. So... Sorry. This paper is... Does Bergman's law apply to New World pit vipers? So pit vipers in the New World, that's the Americas, come in all shapes and sizes. They're big, they're small, they're colourful, they're drab, they're fat, they're thin. Um, As long as you like sort of tubes, they come in any shape and size. And they're also (laughs) from quite a wide area, actually a massively wide area. So they were looking at all the species they could there's a few they couldn't get enough information on but the vast majority of new world pit vipers from all across the americas so from canada into southern argentina and all the way east to west and this also includes hot and cold climates and sea level up to 3000 meters so there's lots of different species doing different things and they were looking to see whether or not the ones which were in colder places or sort of proxy for cold like high elevation or um north or south uh, were larger than the ones more towards the middle or towards sea level well they didn't actually do the latitude stuff did they they just stuck straight to elevation oh you're right no yeah you're right you're right you're right 
Yeah. Latitude, latitude's included in the rule, but they didn't actually do it. Yeah, you're quite right. Right, because it's, it's latitude and elevation. The point is the climatic changes up elevations should reflect latitudinal changes. Yes. Potentially. Yeah. What's uh, You said from tiny, tiny snakes to monstrous snakes. What are the tiny, tiny, the smallest snake and the, and the largest? So the what smallest... We, what do we have? The smallest was... It's a good question. They did say... There we go. The smallest was... <laughs> da, 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 coming in. The Tzotzil Middle American Montane Pit Viper. I mean, what a name. What a name. There's so many mm. there's so many different letters in that name. Um, the Tzotzil Middle American Montane Pit Viper. Wow, I could just say that over and over again. And the scientific name is uh, Kerophidian Tzotzilorum, which... Is only fifty centimeters long. Yeah, little, fifty tiny, centimeters. Little, tiny snake. Um, and then you've got the bushmaster, the South American bushmaster, Lachesis muta, which grows up to three point five meters long. We did a whole episode on those. So if you want to know how we feel about bushmasters, go and find that episode. Spoiler alert: we feel strongly positively about them because uh, they're wicked. But um, how could you not? They're gorgeous. I know. Yeah. How could you not? I'd love to see one. Oh boy. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that's that's the kind of thing we're looking at. And then, you know, there's sort of northern ones. The most northern one was the prairie rattlesnake in Canada, Crotalus viridis. And then the most southern one was, uh, oh, they, we didn't, they didn't look at north and south specifically, but just because they were talking about the distributional range of this New World pit viper group. It's interesting to talk about Patagonian lanceheads, which are Bothrops. Amodytoides, which are like the most southerly distributed um, species of venomous snake. Uh, they're kind of like the antithesis, but also very similar to our adder. So they're like, mm. they go south in the world into Patagonia and southern Argentina, and the adder goes north into the Arctic Circle. They'll never meet, they don't know each other, but my God, they've got a lot in common. <laughs> it's probably best they don't meet. No. Can't imagine. Maybe they'd create some kind of super viper that could actually take it in the Arctic. Oof. Snow viper. That'd be the day. That'd be cool. So, yeah, just uh, we've kind of set the scene there. We're looking at whether or not elevation makes snakes smaller. And if it does, Bergman was right. And if it doesn't, Bergman was wrong. And they looked across all the clades, all the genera. And what they found was that maximum body size significantly declined with elevation. So, yeah, they do get smaller as it gets higher. Uh, however, what they found was that the negative relationship between body size and elevation was driven by the difference in body size among clades. So what that means is that, like, it depended on which genera they were in. So it wasn't the case that they were, like, a, a genus with 10 species and generally this wasn't the case. There'd be a genus with 10 species and as you went up the mountain, the species in that genus got smaller it was more the case that genera that contained big species would be found in lowland areas and genera that contained small species would be found in highland areas so an example is lachesis that we just described the bushmasters they like it low down they're little low down elevation guys whereas mm. uh Kerophidian, that tiny sotsil montane glorious named pit viper we were just talking about they are generally found at higher elevations so you get this distinction that yeah 
high elevation genera small, low elevation genera bigger. And this sort of draws attention to the point it's important to look at the scale that you're studying. Absolutely. If you just just look at one genera, you might miss the entire picture of pit vipers in general, but equally looking at pit vipers overall, you're finding it difficult to detect this Bergsman's rule or not because of this, there's this sort of clade dependent body size. Um, so it's not that, you know, obviously it's, it's the model sort of suggesting, okay, if it's in this clade, it has a bigger body, but that doesn't make sort of biological sense. That's just the way we've organized it based on relatedness. So it's more, it's more just saying that the clades do a better job of predicting body size than anything in elevation if you're taking a species as a distinct unit. Yeah? Yeah. Is that making I think too much sense? It's because it I don't want it to sound like depending on the clade like driving the body size as such. Because a clade isn't a Yeah, no. So you will have you'll have had a yeah, no. They're adapting to their environment, right? And it just so happens that whichever species founded an individual clade, if it was somewhere low, it was better to be big. And it became species that are bigger. Right, there, there's, there's sort of phylogenetic or evolutionary momentum for certain clades being a certain size, and that association might not be driven primarily by elevation. So there's other stuff sort of muddying the water to make it harder to detect. That is, well, harder for the body size in relation to elevation to detect. Yeah. Well, yeah, I yeah. don't, yeah, I don't know, like, yeah, I think there's a lot, there's a lot tied into body size, isn't there? It's not just going to be... Huge amounts, absolutely, It's not, yeah. and I think, yeah, especially, well, for mammals, it's probably the case that um, it literally is really handy to be bigger, but for snakes, being smaller at higher elevations could reflect loads of other stuff, like... One thing they suggest in the paper is that it's better to be arboreal in montane environments because it's probably more it's more likely to be forested. So you need to be smaller and more slender to get up into trees, etc. So it's like a complicated evolutionary picture beyond just oh it's colder, let's get smaller. And there's this momentum behind your closest relatives. So things in the same clade are more likely to be more similar than things in different clades. Yeah. I would Yeah? Yeah. Which they have accounted for to a genus level in this paper. Explain what you mean by momentum. Well, let's let's say let's say you've got a, a species. Okay, Bushmaster arrives in new area because of climactic shifts or something. They suddenly come into this new area. This is right, fun. Okay, new op- new open niche. Um, it can either stay at low elevations and make good use of that, or there's open niche in slightly higher elevations. The disadvantage of trying to get into the higher elevations is you need to modify maybe arboreality or body size or something like that to take full advantage of it. So what's going to happen? There's more friction there to change into something else to sort of slowly adapt. Or you could just sit tight with low elevation and stay with areas that are climactically sort of more in line. But depending on where you started from, has has some bearing on where you end up. So if the same thing happens, but we were talking about, I don't know, lance heads or something coming into the same area, there may be less friction to get into those high elevation areas than for a bushmaster. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a there is a sort of momentum to where you were before has some sort of bearing on where you will end up. Gotcha. 
and that's all I'm getting at with the with the clades is it's the way the the model sort of suggests is it's well the way the model's describing it is variation is explained by clades but that's not actually what's doing it the the point is that it's the evolutionary sort of trajectory that's created those clades has some sort of impact mm. not the fact that they're just in a group sure because the groups are relatively arbitrary because it's just a continuum of relatedness anyway yeah the groups just make it easier for us to understand right right yeah so yeah absolutely mm. cool yeah all right just the way species make it easy to understand yeah gosh i hate thinking about the fact there aren't species it's too much for my little brain we have to have species i like it <laughs> no i like it a lot <laughs> because scary. then yeah no then it's still just one then it's just one value of relatedness that's like but that just makes me feel too close to a jellyfish it makes me uncomfortable well you get uncomfortable when you get close to jellyfish for other reasons <laughs> it's true yeah there was uh, yeah, so this is actually an example of Contra Bergman. It's the opposite. Instead of getting bigger at higher elevations... That was his brother, right? Contra Bergman. So yeah, they get they don't get bigger at higher elevations, they get smaller. So yeah. Yes, as a, as a sort of general clade. Okay, so the other thing they looked at, in addition to body size, was scale counts. And they wanted to see whether or not there was a difference in scalation, or squamation, to use the proper term, between snakes at low elevations and high elevations and whether or not that could somehow tie into the Bergman's rule. They kind of added this extra layer of depth. Yeah, because basically ectotherms could have alternative ways other than body size to deal with different climates. Yeah, you know... It's, makes a lot of sense. You've got to try and work this stuff out. Yeah, yeah. scales... Yeah, exactly. Scales are used for, like, water retention, um, obviously thermoregulation. If there's gaps between the scales, the interstitial skin, it's kind of like leaving your coat unzipped. Maybe. Yes, Yes, if your if your coat was made out of keratin. Yeah, exactly, keratin coat. Um, so what one thing they found was that as snakes got bigger, they had more scales, but that seems sort of obvious. Well, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm I've got more skin since than when I was a baby. But then again, obviously that that's actually a bad example to use because you don't really get onto genetic changes in scalation. There's a couple of times where that's happened, but they're a little bit shaky. But regardless, you know what I'm saying. It's not surprising that a bigger animal will have more scales than an animal which doesn't grow as big. Right. But the the, the bit that they want... So, okay, they've, they've got that relationship sorted, but the you need to work out that relationship so you can remove the impact of uh, body size to just look at the scale impact. Because we know body size is being modified by elevation to a certain extent. So we've got to put that to one side, account for that in the model, so you can just look at the scale stuff. But basically, even with that accounted for, say, okay, basically control for body size, scales, it didn't appear that scale counts were particularly connected to uh, elevation in any meaningful way. No. Yeah? Yeah. But what I want... So the scales they used, what did they have? They had... Where's that list? I have a list. They have a list. Um, Intersuperoculars, mid-dorsal scale rows, subcordals, superlabials, ventrals. So they got a bunch of scales, and the way they they sort of summarized it is they did a, did a way of basically compressing all those numbers into an index. Well, sort of. Um, principal component analysis. Put that to one side, ignore that. The point is it summarized all the scale stuff into one metric. I wonder whether 
um, the scale stuff, you could get rid of all the body-dependent scales and just run it on head-related scales as a different way of controlling for body size modifying scale caps. Because head scalation is conserved within species, right? That's a that's a way of characterizing different species. Yeah. And it's it's not gonna tends not to change ontogenetically and tends not to change dependent on uh, like diet and other things like that. It's relatively stable where it does change is between species and potentially subpopulations and things like that. Yeah. And you're working on a scale that's climatic or subpopulation level. So I wonder if there are variations in head scalation that aren't going to be modified by body size, but are still going to be modified by climactic uh, factors. Now you couldn't really investigate that in this paper as such, because I think that might be a within-species sort of variation that you'd be spotting that, because otherwise you'd just be seeing the variation between head size... Oh, no, I suppose, no, if you have different species in different places, that's the whole sort of principle what they're getting at. I don't know, I'm just... I'm wondering whether there was there was some stuff in the head scale count specifically which would be completely detached from body size. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of like why... What possible reason could there be that... I don't really understand what motivates evolution to select for a particular amount of scales on the head anyway. Like, why... Yeah, that's that's the thing, because I, I don't think, like, interstitial skin exposure on the head is going to be a particularly big deal. No. Whereas on the body, you can imagine that being a massive deal because of, the, you know, flexing and breathing, whatever, the the uh, motion of a snake body revealing interstitial yeah, but, skin. Yeah. And therefore having some sort of selective pressure on that one way or another. But the head, perhaps not. Hmm. But it just feels like the head would be a, a way of looking at it without the body sort of impact, like longer snakes having more ventrals, that sort of issue. I see what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, I mean, they did account for the body size on scale count, so that, you know, they have dealt with it that way. I just, I, well, yeah, I don't know. I It just made me wonder, is all. Yeah, fair enough. Good, well, mate, wander on, that's all I can say, but... Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, I don't know. I like, my sort of gut, re- gut feeling is that... um when you've got measures like um, this number of scale rows and ventral scales, I don't know. Yeah, they just seem like they're much more impactful to the kind of um, morphology and possibly behavior and fermi regulation of the snakes than the head scales. So, yeah, perhaps it would have been good to treat yeah. them separately. Yeah. I just want, well, maybe the head scales are a decent proxy or maybe they're completely not. Mm. We can, we can maybe 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 them being killed or not is is some somehow tied to how the scales act. Yeah. But then you're getting into such incredible, you know, it's just like okay, more data, more nuance, more data, more nuance, going and going and going. I mean, you'd he, never end up stopping. Um, yeah. And that sort of brings us onto the 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 drawbacks that they state at the end of the paper is like okay, we've got this contra Bergman rule, but what do we actually need to sort of get into the nitty-gritty of what's driving it. Okay, you need, within population data, you need some of the latitude data. You need how climates actually vary within a specific species distribution. Basically checking how this scales from a continent level back down to a population level. Because the same drivers should exist. If, it, if it's like a, a universal sort of climate rule, 
then you should be able to see these patterns at a smaller scale as well as a broader scale, because those selective pressures should be the same, and therefore should be driving the same differences. Yeah. There'll still be a lot of noise in that, huge amounts of noise in that, because you're going to have, you know, maybe maybe a snake's got a different behavior. Maybe it's spending more time underground or more time in the in the trees or whatever. And we know that arboreality and fossoriality can modify snake morphology. So you've got all these other little bits to try and account for when you're sort of bringing it down on to a scale. That's why they've kept this quite broad and quite rough, because they're looking for a quite a broad and rough rule. Yeah, well, it is just a sort of wide eco-geographical principle, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't know. I just get the feeling that... Um, I just think this whole paper could have been done without the mention of Bergman. Yeah, potentially. Sort of a, a climactic impact on snake morphology. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like there comes a point where you've got... Without tying it back to something that was created for mammals, for mammals yeah. and birds. It's just like you're trying to shoehorn something in there. That's just my gut feeling. And like, I don't know. I reckon that's less to do with the people writing it, more to do with how you get a herpetological focused paper into... Ecology and evolution. Uh, ecology and evolution. You might be right, and that is a shame if you're right. But um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Usually it has to be tied to testing this sort of broader principle with the the bigger journals. It has to have like a... It can't just be a neat thing for vipers or something. It has to be tied to a broader ecological principle. Mm. And I think Bergsman was actually a good pick for this because it does draw attention to rules that have been made for mammals and birds don't necessarily apply to ectotherms. And that, to me, seems very sensible to be thinking about these animals in a different way because they're constrained by completely different things. Yeah. And I do like the way that pa this paper draws quite clear attention to that. Um, I mean, it, you know, they just live different lives. That is the long and short of it. Mammals and reptiles are different, so different, and they're going to be different. I mean, they're obviously they're going to be, there are some broad similarities, but like, yeah, at least for this one eco-geographical principle, snakes and mammals don't match up they're, they're opposites they get smaller at, potentially at least what well, new world pit vipers get smaller at altitude where mammals get bigger so that's that that's the take-home message and that's what that's what you can tell your mates yeah but make sure you caveat it that this was just uh the americas yeah make yeah don't who knows how global the pattern is that'll be you would sort of presume that it's i, I you know i put my money on it being pretty seems likely I feel like... To be relatively universal. Yeah, well, I was thinking a lot reading for this about the amount of convergent evolution there is between Asian vipers and American vipers and how yeah. if you pick an American yeah. one, you can kind of reliably pick... Find its counterpart. Yeah. So I would be amazed if this pattern doesn't go over into Asia and European vipers too. But, you know, time will tell, I'm sure. So you'd expect, just as a sort of like picking some random species out of a hat, uh, Vipera barris being nor very northern and and do they get smaller? I don't know. They have a nice they have a nice wide distribution, so that would be a not a bad one to pick on. Yeah, and there's a lot of existing data on Vipera barris. Probably yeah, I mean... like a lot. Like there've been huge numbers captured and measured because all you need is decent measures of body size. Yeah, the legwork's already been um, done, and actually where it came from. Yeah. yeah. It would be interesting to know. Yeah, and then you could actually do it on a within species level and a within sort of population level if you were lucky with some of the data sets. Mm. So, yeah. That would be neat. The, uh, the floor is open for someone to do that, I suppose. And you also get very, you get very big vipers in, in Africa, don't you? Like the bitters. Some of the bitters are monstrous. 
Yeah, you get and like you think of the massive ones, puff adders, gaboon vipers. They're all lowland species for sure. They're all like grassland type guys. Yeah, and then you've got all those delicate little Russell's vipers. Sorry, or another one, a fat one. They're lowland. Yeah, they're lowland. Delicate ones up in the mountains. Uh, yeah, I, I, and it just sort of thinking about it, it feels like it's gonna gonna apply to. Eurasia and, and Africa. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Perhaps it's in the works already. This is a brand new paper, isn't it? So uh, people are probably still it digesting it. Yeah. I, I think the kicker will be getting the, basically doing the data curation aspect for much of Eurasia, um, both being confident with what you're dealing with in terms of species and relatedness and getting consistent or, or reliable scale counts that represent an entire species. Mm. Cool. Well, I think that pretty much sums it up. They're Contra Bergman. Mm. Contra Bergman. Snakes go their own way. Yeah. I think if Bergman were here today, he'd be like smiling at that. He'd be like, wow, my rule's still relevant a hundred and something years later. And it's wrong <laughs> for snakes. But, you know, he probably didn't care about snakes. Yeah. He probably just liked sheep. Well, maybe. I didn't, yeah. Who knows? If I knew Bergman and I didn't, I'd say he hated snakes. Hated snakes. (laughs) (laughs) And we live it that they've contravened his rule. (laughs) (laughs) You suspected he didn't like them. That's the last (laughs) rule. Right. Uh, Should we move on to the second paper? Yeah, second paper. (laughs) Mike. Setzer, Makino Deloya and Lawing, 2012. Apologies for any butchery in those names. Sexual differences in head form and diet in a population of Mexican lance-headed rattlesnakes, Crotalus polystictus, published in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society. Mm, polystictus. Yeah. Different sticks. No. No? No, it means many spots. It's oh. like... Multomaculatus, but whichever one is Greek and one is one's that, Greek and one's Latin. It's a land for a Greek swap, yeah, is it? I think so. So yeah, Polystictus is quite a nice name. I quite like it's that. It's a really cool name, and it suits them. They're really handsome beasts. Mm. Yeah, so we're talking about a little rattlesnake. Obviously, it's from Mexico. The Mexican lance-headed rattlesnake, clues in the name. Um, yeah, and they are. They're awesome looking. They're this kind of yellowy gold background color, overlaid with lots and lots of chocolate brown spots. And we were talking about convergent evolution in vipers earlier on. Um, this looks a lot like a Russell's viper to my eyes, but just with smaller spots. And they're actually smaller than Russell's vipers as well. Um, yeah, I think the the head the head to body ratio is a bit off. Well, yeah, I mean, because Russell vipers have quite big heads. Yeah, they're not the perfect perfect comparison. Really, just in coloration, that sort of cryptic yeah. grassland type sort of camouflagey coloration they're also yeah they're just generally a lot smaller than russell's vipers these snakes don't exceed a meter while russell's vipers get to like 1.5 so yeah they're from a different continent and the similarity really ends at the splotches but they are similarly splotched and uh Hmm. yeah hence the name polystictus many spotted many spotted rattlesnake so many spotted and potentially many different head sizes yes yes Good one. So, yeah. Sexual dimorphism in head size. So, males and females having different sizes, potentially shapes of head. 
okay, what are the possible things that could be doing this? Uh, could just be one's bigger and therefore has a bigger head. Okay, so it's just by accident. Could be a sexual selection thing. Could be something connected to male-male combat if biting's involved. So snakes with bigger heads may have an advantage there, therefore more likely to reproduce. Therefore those genes sort of get passed on and slowly but surely yeah. things uh, separate from the female. Yeah, just to mention, biting yeah. is quite rare in venomous snakes. Yes, but not unheard not of. Not unheard of. And another one, niche partitioning. So maybe males and females are eating different things or living in slightly different ways that would hoof them to have slightly different head sizes to take best advantage of that. Or just as a final fifth potential option, it could be a complete mix and match of all of those things just to confuse the matter and uh, make it really difficult to work out exactly what's driving differences. Yep. Hmm. Well said. Okay. Well said. And we do have a few sort of examples of this occurring in snakes, right? Of different head sizes in male, fem female within species differences, right? Yeah, isn't that Macrop's paper about that? Yes. Yes. So not only in different snakes, but in vipers as well. Mm. And yeah, just before we get onto the meat and potatoes, uh, this Crotalus polystictus, a.k.a. the Mexican lance-headed rattlesnake, it has a fragmented distribution throughout southern Mexican plateau, where it occurs mostly in sort of mid to high elevation grasslands and meadows. So if you want to imagine where you can find this snake, imagine it's quite hilly, grassy, a bit of meadowy, very nice. And it's ones with massive heads, and ones with tiny little legs. Well, I wouldn't go as far as to say that, but certainly there's some disparity in head size. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, they were doing their they were doing their field work in pasture, fallow fields, and cropland. So it's kind of a mosaic of human and non-human dominated areas along the Rio Lerma, that's River Lerma, in the state of Mexico, Mexico. And they wanted to find out, like you say, whether or not there was this sexual size dimorphism in head form. So our male and female heads different. And then they were going to try and relate any differences in head size to differences in what they eat, which is a logical thing to do because the head is mm, used. Which is getting at that niche, that niche separation. Precisely, because the head is used for eating yeah. and snakes can't chew. They also can't slice their prey. Um, it's very rare for snakes to do anything other than manoeuvre their prey down into their gullet. So, uh, yeah, it's important. It relates directly to what they eat. Mm. And they did that by taking some pictures of snakes. So, yeah, they put them under anaesthetic. They had quite a lot of snakes, didn't they? They had 46 males and 86 females, all of which were yep. adults. And, yeah, they took photos of them under anaesthetic and they wanted to see whether or not the heads were different in size relative to the body. So it's important to know this isn't just a male has a bigger head because it's a bigger snake. The head is bigger relative to its bigger body size. And they also wanted to see whether the male and females had differently shaped heads. Um, because obviously that could, as I said, have an important function in their, well, firstly, which prey they can accommodate in that head. And also when they're handling the prey, that might also come into play. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Pretty straightforward. How are they different? And do they eat different things, which they looked at the poo for? So they were getting a bit of poo, yeah? Get the poo on your Petri dish, right? You square it with probably maybe some distilled water, and then you just let it soak it up, and you give it a poke, and then you see what you can see in there. See if you can see any scales. See if you can see any uh, feathers. Maybe some fur. And from that, 
obviously if it's fur it's not going to be a lizard it's going to be a mouse or whatever it might be and yeah that's how they did the uh, the poo analysis hmm categoric cat so nothing about weight or anything like that just which categories and from that you can get an idea of uh, dietary overlap which i think we discussed what two episodes ago with with the water snakes oh yeah we did didn't we with the worms and the slugs yeah exactly so same sort of game plan here but instead of looking at different species they're looking at within a species yeah i actually saw one of i saw two massive worms at the weekend this is a pretty sweet story so buckle up and uh (laughs) they were crossing a road and it was very rainy it was like really raining hard gone for a walk and there's these massive worms which i think the genus was correct I can't remember. But yeah, they're these European monster worms, right? Which are the ones which are invasive in the States, which the garter snakes were all eating. And I was like, Mm. I just had a newfound respect for them, you know. And I told my friends about it and they were like, yeah, cool, mate. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) They're just big worms. But I, you know, I helped these worms off the road. And they had an interesting defense mechanism, these worms. When you pick them up, they suddenly coil like really tightly and start like coiling and uncoiling really violently. And yeah. They both did that, and one of them also squirted poo on me. Um, nice. So I learned a little bit about worms. And what was cool is I moved them off the road, and literally one second later, a Land Rover came, so it would have fully smashed them into pieces, or more likely squashed them. Um, so yeah, did my good deed for the day. Saved a worm, saved two worms, and really had a new appreciation for worms, since I now know they're an invasive species which feeds my favourite animal snakes halfway across the world. <laughs> They probably feed your favourite species in their native range too. By day, <clears throat> yeah. They, I mean, they, they're definitely a food for slow worms, so I can respect them for that. Yeah. And so are slugs. So, yeah. All of these animals have their place. Ah. Oh. Oh. That's, that's a nice story. Thank you for that's that. That's all right, mate. I thought you'd like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, results. Let's get into it. Males. Bigger than females, 20% bigger to be exact. They averaged 75 centimetres snout vent length as compared to 62 centimetres for females. Yes. And as you said, general rule, males are larger when there's male-to-male combat. Did you say that? You didn't say that. You were just talking... I didn't... No, I didn't I didn't. I didn't say biting. that there was going to be... Yeah, I said that dimorphism could be driven by male-male combat, not necessarily which way it was driven. Yeah, so generally speaking, if the males are bigger, that means that you've got males battling because obviously if you're battling for supremacy you want to be large sized um, which is perfectly likely that this happens for pit vipers I couldn't find anything published that says they do it neither could the authors of this paper they specifically said I think in it that they couldn't find any published evidence and they obviously haven't seen the males combating however um, I did a little bit of a google and there's an association of zoos and aquariums page which lists a bunch of um, venomous snakes and sort of like their captive propagation for conservation and in that it said that they'd witnessed it in captivity um so there is mm. i mean probably that if it's in the captivity generally speaking that transposes with with combat it's not something they just like randomly do because it pit viper combat is ritualized it's, it's quite specific and ritualized exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i think in that case well and the other thing is you do have these males being larger and okay, think of another driver that would push that. Uh, male male combat's the best explanation. Yeah, it's the simplest, the isn't it? The it's day. the path of least resistance. Yeah. yeah. Most parsimonious. Ooh, parsimonious. 
Nice word. Good one to have in the uh, active vocab. So, males had larger heads relative to their body size. So, yeah, once you allow for the fact that they're bigger already, possibly due to the fact that they're combating, their heads are also larger relative to their body size, and their heads are also broader um, and slightly truncated. So, if you look at them, they looked a little bit more squashed, but they were actually bigger and broader. And they also changed shape as the animals got bigger, whereas female heads didn't. So, the bigger a male snake got, um, its head would get broader as it grew, which kind of suggests that something changes in how they use their heads. Potentially they're handling larger prey, perhaps. Um, And that was actually reflected in their diet analysis, wasn't it? Um, Despite these snakes... I mean, Mexican lance-headed pit vipers generally are eating small mammals, mainly mice and voles. So diet-wise, there was a lot of overlap in males and females. But what they saw was that males were eating more of the largest species of mammal, so things like rabbits, rats, and squirrels, and females were eating more of the kind of pygmy mice and shrews. So you've kind of got a Venn diagram where the males and females, you know, the vast majority, like three quarters of it crosses over in the middle. But on the left-hand side, you've got the females eating more of the smallest pygmy mice and shrews, and the males at the rightmost extreme of bigness are eating the rabbits, rats, and squirrels, which are a little bit too big for the females to handle. Yeah, and and less bugs. Less bugs. They didn't find a sing- single bug in uh, in male snakes. Oh. If I'm reading their table correctly. Whereas the females were eating bugs. Yeah, not very many, but some. Disgusting. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, we just talked about uh, the dimorphic differences of males being because of male-to-male combat. Um, usually, that's what these things, these differences are attributed to. So, sexual selection is kind of like the most obvious um, explanation and probably likely often the true explanation for differences in male and female body size and structure um, but it is also a little bit easier to pick apart than niche partitioning niche partitioning takes a little bit more effort to kind of get to grips with um, yeah you need the context you need some sort of natural history how the different ones are living to to be confident it is a separation in niche yeah exactly um, so um, so yeah, yeah. in Crotalus yeah. polystictus, the males were getting bigger, they had a larger relative head size and a broader head shape, and like we said, they also differed in the frequency of prey species consumed. So basically, it's pretty obvious from all this stuff that they found out that dimorphism in head morphology is probably partly attributable to ecological niche divergence between the sexes. So they are behaving differently, eating different things, yeah. and that has like... It doesn't mean that... Other things aren't impacting it, but you can be confident that niche separation probably has something to do with it. Yeah, I think what they said in the paper was that pre-existing differences, so the males being larger for battle, for example, are amplified because as the males get bigger, they choose larger prey, and then they're also there's yes. also a requirement for them to adapt to that larger prey by getting a wider head. Um, so it's kind of this like feedback loop of bigness until you reach a kind of plateau where they're big enough to do what they need and their heads are big enough to eat the squirrels, etc. Yeah, the, the pressure relaxes because there's no benefit of getting much bigger. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I thought this was a really neat description of um, uh, sexual size dimorphism as it relates to prey choice. Um, and it's quite cool because it's another viper species, which is, as you say, there is a um, there is kind of a precedent for that. 
Yeah. And here we are. But this one's gone gone further to explain, okay, what are the possible mechanisms? There's been quite a few that are just describing the differences, but this is going a step further and it's an important step to understand the mechanisms why. Yeah, it legitimizes the whole operation, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, if you can identify mechanisms, you can be confident that something's actually going on as opposed to just spotting patterns. Yeah, yeah. One thing they did say about these uh, lance-headed rattlesnakes was that they have... No palatine teeth, so that kind of like inside row. Oh, good. You, yeah. At the top. I was hoping you'd bring this up. Yeah, really cool. I love stuff like this. So they don't have that inside row of teeth, which is kind of like used for gripping and moving prey and stuff. But they do have super long fangs. Um, they also have really narrow heads. They have the narrowest head relative to the body size of any rattlesnake. And the authors think that the reason for these long fangs and narrow heads is that it helps them extricate rodents from burrows so they're kind of like doing a lot of subterranean hunting uh, which is also quite unusual for a rattlesnake they usually ambush prey on the surface but these ones are going underground into burrows with their narrow little heads and long fangs and they are stabbing the rodents where they sleep and eating them in narrow spaces so they think that's probably why they have these narrow heads and long fangs which is really cool Um, and they did mention there's another rattlesnake species uh, what is it? Stegnerai, Stegnegerai, Crotellus yes, Stegnegerai, yep. which uh, long-tailed rattlesnakes have similar teeth, and that's probably for a similar reason, although no one's actually taken the time to study it in detail. Well, it's studying fossorial behaviour, so yeah, good luck. That's that's really, really tough. Yeah, it doesn't get much harder than that, does it? I, I, I would say, yeah, you're right, but you never, I mean... I don't know, studying animals at the bottom of the ocean is probably pretty difficult too. Yeah, but I mean, at least they're in a, a three-dimensional space. As long as you've got a re- sort of remote-operated vehicle, you can go around and explore. I mean, you could probably stick a camera onto a mole and persuade it to show you some rattlesnake behaviour, but it's going to be a lot more difficult. Yeah, and the mole has a very high likelihood of being consumed by the rattlesnake. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Then you've just got a good video of inside a rattlesnake. And then you've got to have the whole conversation with the mole about danger pay. Mm. Yeah, it's not good. Mm. And the ethics of sending a mole into a, <laughs> a known rattlesnake hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. You just put all you do. You get one of those um, snake-proof gloves. Cut a couple of holes in it. <laughs> in fact, moles don't even need to see very well. You cut one hole in it for the nose. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you give it. And yeah, and there the, you go. Little, and it's all armored up. Little holes for his arms and legs. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Well, maybe a little little sub-gloves, sub because what if it got bitten on the foot? That would be awful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, you'd need little sub-gloves for the, for the little moles. Little moles. Well, there we go. Um, yeah, they're cool little snakes. These uh, Crotalus polystictus. Very beautiful, and Superb. as it turns out, yep. yeah, males and females eating different things as a way of getting along together, which is good. Yeah, and it's cool to have that all linked up with a mechan- potential mechanism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or amplification, or whichever came first. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to say about these snakes, I did a little Google search for other papers, and um, they their venom changes as they get older, which is quite interesting. Um, when they're juveniles, they still eat mammals. They're pretty much mammal eaters. But um, when they are babies, they have slightly less toxic venom than when they're adults. Um, so the hmm. snake venom metalloproteases... Snake venom metalloproteinases, which are responsible for like savage hemorrhaging in 
mammal prey, which is why if you were to get bitten by one of these, it would suck. Um, they have less of that uh, compared to when they're adults. So their juvenile venom is actually slightly less um, damaging. Well, slightly less mammal-specific, potentially. Well, they did say the composition in prey... Are, the, the composition in prey doesn't really change, so they're eating mammals throughout their lives, but the prey is physically different when they're babies. There's like surface to volume ratio differences rather oh, than okay. taxonomic differences. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So like So they don't need to switch as such, they just need to there's no selective there's no benefit of having too much Yeah, basically I think because venom when they're smaller. Yeah. Well basically, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they just use less of these probably expensive proteins i think the ld50 for juvenile mice was like about 20 percent less than the ld50 for Mm. adult mice so basically yeah they can just get away with they basically don't need as much venom to subdue babies as they do adults and they're probably producing less venom anyway but the venom doesn't need to be as strong so yeah double benefits double double benefits but yeah quite cool so that's a uh, if you're interested in venom and you can understand the words that I can't it's a McKessie et al paper from 2018 I'll I'll put it in the show notes it'll be in the show notes yeah Yeah. cool Uh, so yeah I think that pretty much summarises our well it summarises the two papers uh, quite nicely I think it's time that we went on to our species of the bi-week don't you let's do it species of the bi-week So we've actually managed to find, we've actually managed to find here, Miles, a paper which is a newly described species of American viper. Uh, whether or not you'd say Central American, I don't know. Um, yeah, no. It's not quite, I, no, no, I don't think you'd say Central American. I just American, read the wrong. But yeah. it's, it's South American, really. Southeastern Brazil is... The- it's the best we could do. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the best we could do, and it is a cool new snake, and it's got some interesting stuff to talk about. So let's get into it. This paper is by Barbo, Gasparini, Almeida, Zaha, Graziotin, Gusmao, Ferrarini, and Sawaya. And 2016, it was published, and it's entitled Another New and Threatened Species of Lancehead Genus Bothrops from Ila dos Franceses, Southeastern Brazil, published in Zoo Taxa. Hmm. So a little bit further south than what we've been talking about before. And where are we at? We are on a tiny island in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, called Isla dos Franceses. Yeah. Um, Which is sort of, what would you say, two-thirds down Brazil? About halfway down the yeah. the sort of southern yeah, coast? Yeah, definitely. And it's just off the coast of Espirito Santo, if you know your Brazilian geography. That's the... Uh, that's the coastal region of the state. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, what should we do first? Should we talk about... Well, I mean, it's on an island, right? Which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it's a little, little insular species. There's a suggestion that there are... Well, suggestion. There is evidence for multiple different species, sort of little endemics on several different islands, I think. I think Bothrops... I've, I've, I've just written multiple islands have... Bothrops insular species. Bothrops insularis is definitely um, the most famous one, which is the one that Vice did the documentary about, Snake Island. 
Snake Island. Oh, of course. Which is actually a great... Where where the snakes snakes crawled through the window and, and killed that guy's family, and so he left. Yeah. The last lighthouse keeper on Snake Island. That was That's a true story. I mean, those were vengeful snakes. Um, yeah. They didn't like the fact... They teamed up, they crawled through the window, and that was that. Yeah, I mean, that's what snakes do. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, those Bothrop Cincellaris are pretty awesome, though. Like, And I would watch that documentary. I mean, it's like half an hour or something, and it's cool just because you really do get to see an island where there is an insane density of snakes. And they all eat birds, like, once yeah. or twice a year. They're just hanging off the branches, trying to eat the birds, trying to make a go of it. It's pretty cool. What were they saying? Yeah, finding between 50 and 33 snakes a day. And compared to this island, which is still pretty pretty high density of 15 snakes per day. Yeah, so, two, two an hour, which yeah. is absurdly high density for a snake. Um, or at least they're easy to find. But I mean, it doesn't look like the easiest habitat to search for snakes. It's kind of grassy. Yeah, but yet still 15 a day. Yeah. Um, and so what did they name this snake? The common name is cool. The common name is the Francis's, Francis's Island Lancehead. I don't know how to pronounce that. It's either Francis's or Francis's Island Lancehead. And then the scientific name is Bothrops Sazamai, which is dedicated to Professor Ivan Sazama. So uh, this snake, they actually have quite a lot of information on it because they found so damn many. They actually just got a reasonable idea of what it is they might be doing compared to most species descriptions where it's like, yeah, we saw it in a riverbed. We grabbed it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it likes bushes, maybe, sometimes. Yeah, at least one of them liked a bush once. Uh, but this one, they know the beginning of daily activity was observed in late afternoon, so you didn't really see snakes before that. And snakes were observed coiled, approximately 13. Moving, they saw eight. Or stationary, four. Uh, mostly on the ground, but also in lower portions of shrubs and trees. And um, they know that they feed on ectothermic prey. Uh, so they had quite a few individuals which they examined in scientific collections and they were looking at the prey remnants in their stomach and gut contents, just like the paper we just did. And they were mostly finding lizards, um, but also quite a lot of centipedes and a snake. So they're kind of like eating lizards and centipedes. It's basically the take home message of that. Um, Hmm. And one interesting thing they noticed that was that the young have a yellow tail tip, um, which suggests that they cordially lure, which is something we've talked about a lot. They're just wiggling their tail, trying to draw in the lizards. Yeah. And potentially... Could be caudal lure. What if it was the opposite? What if it was a defensive thing? I guess, yeah, you'd have to see the circumstances in which they were using them. But, I mean, if you've got a viper with a bright yellow tail tip, you, your first thought is caudal lure. Yeah, ab- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, especially in Bothrops, because like some of the others have it. If I think it was like one of the first groups that cordial luring was actually mentioned in. And when we did that cordial luring episode, it's mm. like heavily. But I do agree with you. There isn't any sort of concrete evidence. We need some video, um, and you need some like circumstantial stuff. But yeah. But it's yeah. The the chances are cordial luring. Yeah, um, and this one is actually smaller than its mainland cousin. So these island what these island forms come from Bothrop's Jararaka. And so these ones are smaller on the island. So it's a classic bit of island dwarfism, potentially because of the lack of mammalian prey, which is what the mainland species eat. It stands to reason that if there's going to be slightly less prey or smaller prey, the snakes would evolve to be smaller. Um, Yeah, so they've also got Mm. larger eyes and smaller heads and their um, nostrils are 
further forward on the head. And all these things, these kind of like small forward-facing heads with big eyes, kind of suggests that they might be... Well, it kind of suggests a benefit in searching for like small um, ectothermic prey. So you've got like everything's pushed to the front you've got this little head it might help them eat centipedes and stuff like that help them find it perhaps they've got better vision than their mainland counterparts which are probably using their heat sensing pits a little bit more to find uh, mammals and such obviously that's just an idea that they have based on how these snakes look but the the, the point remains that they've got big eyes and uh, very forward nostrils uh, and little heads so changes in sort of shape and scale and stuff uh, did we actually say how big they are? We've not said how big they are. That's your job. You love saying how big things so, are. So, SVL of six hundred and thirty millimeters for the for an adult male. Right. That's that's the holotype with an extra hundred and eight millimeters on that. So not monstrous snakes, but a pretty decent sized viper. Pretty, you know, mm, quite a long tail. Very visible. Well, hundred and eight. Yes, seventeen percent of total length. They say. So yeah, that does kind of suggest that maybe they spend a little bit of time in those bushes. Or it's to benefit the caudal luring. Could be. Could be. So, coloration-wise, the snake is brown. That is... Um, It's got other areas of additional brown. Yeah. But what's really important is the brown differs in different places in a very nice pattern. So we have these sort of almost bell-shaped sort of um, triangles going out from the central spine, but they're slightly offset, so you've got like two sets of patterns on either side but slightly offset so you get this almost zigzag I'm trying to think of another snake to sort of compare it looks it to. like a timber rattlesnake yeah 100% yeah that's what my first thought was timber rattlesnake aka canebrake rattlesnake yeah definitely very very similar coloration to that hmm good looking snake very good looking good looking viper yeah really cool snake uh yeah I'd like to go to this island and poke around and find some i mean it'd be awesome just to find two snakes in an hour then you could just call it a night oh yeah 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 especially little stunning ones like that um what else do we have oh conservation status classified or suggested to be classified as critically endangered just by virtue of how small an area it occupies makes good sense Uh, Uh, basically saying hey let's just protect the island job done yeah let's potentially protect the island like let the island be because i mean it's full of venomous snakes. That's enough to keep most people away. Yeah. One thing I did want to... Yeah, there's no, no reason to mess with them. I'm feeling brave, Ben, so I'm going to talk about genetics. Oh, but they didn't do any genetics, did they? They did not. And it's interesting. <gasps> now, the island has only been separated from the mainland for three or 4,000 years, which was kind of the medium Holocene. So we're in the same geological epoch, unless you count the Anthropocene as the one we're in now, as when this island Which separated from the mainland. Should, yeah, we probably we probably should. But that is not very long. So there's been a land bridge three or four thousand years ago. So there is probably no difference genetically between these snakes that you could distinguish using traditional methods between these snakes and their mainland counterparts, right? But they've definitely mm. diverged, morph diverged. They've definitely diverged morphologically, so they definitely represent a valid conservation unit, I would say. Yes. 
We've took maybe. Yeah. Well, basically, what I'm saying is this is going to be controversial because there's going to be some people who are like, well, okay, yeah, they're on an island, but if they're not in any way genetically different, then they're probably not a different species by what most people consider a species. And apparently, there's been genetic yeah. studies of other island species, so called species, like this, which have been shown to be pretty much identical to Bothrop's. Um, Jararaka, which is the mainland one, but people have still called yeah. them species because of the fact that they're, you know, unique in other ways. You know, they're geographically isolated and they're morphologically different, and they're obviously doing slightly different things. So there, that's it. It's controversial. People are going to say, "Well, they're not a different species," whereas other people, and I think I'm in. Which I'm I, in the camp I, of. I, I think I go on. Yes. Which sorry. camp are you in? Well, I was going to say it depends what you want to conserve, because you there's a lot of wait there being like okay don't waste the effort because we're so limited on conservation resources anyway so prioritize just conserving the species as a whole wherever you can and in that sense the islands provide a very nice little conservation unit to keep protected with the sort of assumption that the mainland species are going to be under main uh, mainland sort of subpopulation species whatever you want to call it is under more pressure so you've got these little refugia against the encroachment of humans the counterpoint is, okay, so there is some difference between them and the mainland ones. It may not be long enough for the genetics to reflect that yet, but just because it's not a species yet, the stage is set for speciation. So should you still be protecting the lineage just because they haven't had enough time? And if you say no, okay, maybe you haven't lost a species right this second, but what are you protecting in the future? You might be losing a species, you know, several thousand years down the line, because you've you've sort of uh, I don't know maybe you're translocating them back and forth whatever that island gets turned into something they're gone that way like there's evidence that they're a distinct lineage even if it's not had enough time to mature into a genetic difference yeah yeah as long as you're confident there's no uh, like flow between the mainland and these islands then I think you've got every justification for calling it a different lineage and in that sense. A different species. Mm-hmm. Evolutionary distinctiveness in the future should also be protected. Right. Right, but it's impossible to really... Well, not impossible, but extremely, extremely difficult to predict where on Earth evolution is going to go in those sort of contexts. Um, but in this case, I feel like you've got a pretty strong argument to say, hey, there's something going on. We've got evidence that something's already occurred over X number of years we should probably try and treat these guys separately to preserve that, that lineage. And I I also feel like it's quite a low uh, low cost species to conserve. Yeah. If it's just, this is a protected area, stop anybody from removing these snakes in any huge numbers or at all, that'd be, I feel like that would be relatively straightforward. It's just a straight, no protected area, critically endangered because of a low population or a restricted population or a restricted area, don't take them, leave the island be. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know the situation in Brazil when it comes to acquiring land for conservation purposes. That might be extremely difficult and actually expensive to own land for the sake of that. But uh, there seems to be very few confusing or, or uh, what's the right word for competing interests. Mm. in that island compared to other species that need conserving so it might be a nice target for that yeah cool well there we go i think new new species bothrop sazamai 
Um, yeah, good stuff. Enjoyable. Very, Very cool. Handsome yeah. creature. And uh, yeah, 15 snakes a day if you go searching. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Just spoiled. Beautiful. Cool. So um, yeah, I think that wraps up our episode on uh, Central American vipers uh, with a South American viper but there weren't any newly described Central American vipers that we could find that we hadn't already done um, so yeah Miles Masterson's Patreon episode I hope you enjoyed it uh, and if anyone else would like to become our Patreon you can um, contribute a little bit to the podcast and if you contribute I think it's $3 a month you can choose a topic um, but yeah you can donate as little as a dollar okay, so if you thought this was a 50 cent experience because we do two a month go for it otherwise just listen for free, you scoundrels. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no hard feelings. Um, yeah, have we got any other business? No. There was. I don't. Um, there was a message from our man Scott Iper about the inland Taipan. So, oh. so uh, we were talking about Taipans we were... being deadly. Were we? Were we? Was this the Venom episode, maybe? Uh, when was this? Which episode were we talking about Venom? Oh, ecology. We were talking about uh, venom ecology. Probably the episode all about... Yes. Oh, yes. Okay, and we were talking about the really deadly snakes in Australia, right? Yes. Yeah, so was it two episodes ago or last episode, the venom? It was last episode, wasn't it? Uh, two, last episode, because two episodes was all the snakes. Yeah, so we were talking about um, the ecology of venoms and the kind of distribution of dangerously venomous snakes. And uh, Scott Ipers got mm. in touch and said that Oxyrhanus microlepidotus which is the Inland Taipan, widely regarded by lots of people, I think, to be the most venomous snake in the world. And um, apparently the reason why is, people think, is because they hunt prey in the subsurface soil cracks. So they're down inside cracks in dry soil in Australia. And um, apparently the venom needs to be toxic to prevent the prey entering an inaccessible soil crack post-bite, which actually goes directly against your assertion, Ben, that fossorial snakes might be less venomous than terrestrial snakes. Obviously, this is just one example. Oh, I'd call that Saxicolus. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> okay. No, I'm, I'm splitting hairs. Saxicolus. No, that's, that's, Love that. That's a really nice um, a really nice example, or potential example, of ecology and venom having a very sort of tight uh, connection. I, I really like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking like, yeah, I don't know. That is fossorial. I mean, it's in the dirt. That is fossorial. Um, I just wonder whether the lack of burrowing makes a difference or not. Don't try and worm your way out of this now. You were wrong. Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to worm, my, worm my way out with a slightly nuanced uh, definition yeah, of fossorial. I know, no, I think that's, I know no, that's, that's a really nice example that, that refutes the... Uh, what was I saying? I was saying fossorial perhaps not needing well, it. Yeah, because our boreal snakes were less venomous, right? Where we thought people expected they might be yes. more venomous. Um, and then the, then it's sort of like, okay, then maybe fossorial also yeah. less venomous. Like, almost as if... Um, with terrestrial having the sort of potentially the greatest opportunity for things to get away and needing to be subdued quickly. Yeah. But I think... And then we've got an example here, which is potentially countering that. Yeah, I like, you know, I like that. You could kind of lump sea snakes into the being... They're like subsurface and they're crazy venomous. But then they've got... They're more like arboreal in that there's a three-dimensional mm. escape space. There's a three-dimensional space, but there's also 
potential like this example of cracks and crevices for things to hide away in that you could not deal with. And we know that that's quite a big driver in sea snakes because there's those freaky ones with the very long, skinny heads. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, the plot thickens again. Yeah, I really like that as a as a as an example. Cool. So I do really do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, for that. cheers, Scott. Thanks very much, as per usual. And so, what are we up to? I think that's pretty much it, isn't it? Uh, I haven't got anything else. Yeah. No, I've 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 got nothing else. Right on. Um. Yeah. If you want to email us, you can herphighlights at gmail dot com, uh, or we're on Facebook. Search for us. Same on Twitter. Um. Yeah. That's it. Simple. I think it's just... Thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks very much. I, I realised I didn't say I said it had a yellow background yellowy gold background colour with spots I didn't say what the blo- what colour the blotches were they're chocolate brown you did say they were chocolate brown did I? well that's worrying <laughs>